3: Welcome to the Monday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering your Bible questions and whatever circumstances you might be dealing with, helping you find a way out, at least according to the Word of God. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You also can call toll-free at 877 630 KSLR, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email your question by emailing questions at calvarySA.com or you can send them in via our free mobile app or KSLR's uh, mobile app and it's really easy if you use the KSLR app uh, to uh, call from your car very, very safe and that's what we want to do. Um, We had a productive weekend here at Calvary Chapel. Lots and lots of people, uh, but productive in the sense of this. Um, We had a baby on Thursday night. Uh, Now, ladies, don't hate. It was a 19-minute labor. From the arrival of the hospital to the baby out, 19 minutes, it which is one of those answers to prayers. And then we came in, found that two other ladies are pregnant. We announced that yesterday. And then I got to do a baby dedication yesterday in third service. So it was a really, really productive weekend here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Had a very difficult study yesterday, but it was a, um, you know, when you go verse by verse through the Bible, you you've got those studies. And I mention that today because I have a question. Did I want to give parents a heads up if you've got children in the car. Um, we've got a question that, that came in based on that study yesterday uh, with some very graphic detail. Not obscene, so don't worry about that, but but graphic questions um, and uh, I, I want to give you a heads up so I'll be letting you know when that's coming so you can turn the radio down uh, or you can move the kids to another room or something like that. We'll do that probably uh, in the first half of the program, but a few minutes down the road so that you can be prepared for it. I also got a question. I've never had a question like this sent in, so let's see what this one is. Uh, This question said, if you had the option of giving up tacos and being thin and healthy for many more years, would you choose hard or soft tacos? (laughs) I've never had a question like that. I'm not a really taco person, but that was a joke, obviously, that somebody was sending me. So That's what my producer was laughing about when we came on the air. Tonight, because it's Monday, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7. Paula will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Ken uh, will be teaching the men. They all meet together for worship, and then they go their separate ways for the Bible studies. Uh, Pastor Nelly will be teaching the high school-age youth. So all of that's going on here tonight. Of course, child care is provided. So uh, please join us. Ladies, you can watch online the live stream at CalvarySA.com. Again, we had a great weekend. I hope you did. hope people got saved at your church. Think about this. Every person that gets saved brings us one person closer to that number of Gentiles that Paul talks about that has to come in before Jesus returns. Um, so we pray that people got saved. We pray that you were used by the Lord and blessed by whatever the Lord uh, did in church yesterday, wherever you are. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from David from our email inbox. David asks, can a Christian give up, in quotes, their salvation? I don't mean lose it. I've listened to your show many times, and I both understand and agree with your view on losing your salvation. The fact that you can't lose it, for when we get saved, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And how if everyone thought a person was saved, but then that person decides to live in sin the rest of his life, he was never really saved to begin with. Uh, But I'm talking about giving it up. Salvation is a free gift from God. Can someone willingly decide to give it up just like any other gift? David, sometimes we try to get too logical. Um, You know, we have free will, Uh, but if somebody, and again, I'm going to focus on the first three words, Kenny Christian, a real believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit so losing it giving it up same thing Jesus said to his father I've lost none that you've given me and he said that about his disciples of course in context but the principle applies to all that the father has given to the son I've lost none uh, the gospel of John says that the, I have them in my hand the father who is greater than I has them in their hand and no one no one not even ourselves no one can pluck them or snatch them from my hand so what we've got to do when we look at this is is consider the faithfulness of God he is faithful when we are faithless that's a very important thing for us to to really meditate on Um, my salvation doesn't depend on me Jesus initiates the work of salvation the Holy Spirit comes alongside it's Jesus who chose me it's Jesus who calls me I respond of my own free will and then when he comes to take up residence in me, he's promised never to leave me or never to forsake me. And so not only can I not give up my salvation, I'll go one step farther and say no real Christian, authentic Christian, would want to give it up. Once you taste and see that the Lord is good, where else would you go? That's really a, a large part of the theme of the book of Hebrews. So, no. Uh, He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Jesus began the work. He is the one who's faithful to complete it. He is, Jesus, we're told, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. So, David, these aren't decisions that we can make. Once we give our lives to Jesus, we're no longer our own. We're bought with the price. And the one who's promised to hold us secure, the one who's promised to keep us, will keep us safe in his hands and in our hearts so it's very important that we understand that too often I think we Christians think too much of what happens in our lives depends on us and in reality uh, none of it depends on us it all depends on Jesus so David I hope that answers your question Um, 340-9585 here is a question from AA from our email inbox and there's several parts of this question, but it's a really good question. He says, Pastor on first John five sixteen speaks about sin unto death. Several question comes to several questions come to mind. First, is John speaking about physical death and not spiritual death? Yes he is. In that particular context, he's speaking about physical death, not spiritual, physical death. The next question, are those punished this way still granted entrance into God's kingdom? For example, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, um, let me go off context for just a moment here, A.A., because, um, you know, we have no guarantee that Ananias and Sapphira were saved. Maybe God's really, really harsh punishment of and nice and fire was because they were trying to infiltrate the church. Now, I don't have any strong opinion on that because we're not given any details, but there's nothing in that scripture that says they were saved. They were numbered among the believers. But that just means they were with the group. If they were believers, then God was making an example of them telling the world what he thinks once and for all, what he thinks about hypocrisy in the church. Now, Ananias and Sapphira's sin was especially important. You'll remember prior to Acts chapter 5, the enemy had tried to persecute the church from without. The persecution from without didn't stop the growth of the church. Ananias and Sapphira represented the enemy's first attempt to persecute the church from within. Satan for the foothold in the church, and God wanted to make a once and for all statement about the value of sincerity, of genuineness. If they were saved, God made that statement, and yes, they went to heaven. Whether they were saved or not, we won't know until we get to heaven. But if you are a Christian and you suffer from this sin, then you will go to heaven. Uh, but it's possible that you could sin to such a degree that God sort of takes you out. The next part of this question is, would the death of Korah and his followers in number, number 16 be another example? Are there examples in today's world of God causing someone to die for a sin? Um, With regard to Korah, of course not. Korah and his followers were not believers. Uh, uh, The Jews that died in the wilderness died because of unbelief. Uh, So just the fact that they were numbered among the assembly, the fact that they were in the Exodus doesn't mean they were God's people. Israel, the nation, was chosen by God, but all of those individuals, um, all but, but Caleb and Joshua perished. Uh, in the wilderness, so no, they weren't saved uh, in, in, in the New Testament construct since. Uh, so, so Korah and his followers are not uh, an example of this sin in First John 5. Uh, what they are an example of is God judging uh, those who are the most accountable. Korah knew better. Korah was challenging the man that God put into place, the man that God put into authority, the man through whom God spoke to the people. Uh, so Korah and his followers are not an example of this sin. Uh, I do believe um, that there are examples in today's world of God causing someone to die for sin. We just don't know what they are. Uh, I do know uh, personally a couple people uh, who God used um, to to a great degree in their lives uh, who turned away um, and especially heinous sin um, and, and they died very... Quick, unnatural deaths, um, and um, I, I wouldn't at all be surprised uh, if if we find out in heaven that that this was God's way of keeping them from sinning to a place where. Um, their reputations, their lives, God's word would be dishonored. So, so um, yeah, I mean that's why John said it is because there are examples in today's world. The problem is we never know what those examples are, and it's uh, unwise of us. It is unfair, even ungodly, of us to judge those situations. You know, when somebody does something, well, you know, I know he committed the sin unto death. We don't know that for sure, and this is uh, one of those things that we just take at face value. John says there is a sin unto death, a physical death. And we have to take him for his word. Uh, the rest of the question, would these sins be mortal is in the Catholic vernacular apart from the venial? Um, forget the Catholic vernacular. Uh, that's a silliness uh, in the sense that it has no value in, in or basis in the Bible. Um, so uh, a sin that we die from, uh, that doesn't disqualify us from heaven. Um, you know, the Catholic teaching is that suicide is a mortal sin. Um, that's not consistent with what the Word of God teaches. And Then uh, he says that sin unto death only happened to true Christians, uh, are atheists, agnostics, and secularists given a pass. Um, well, a sin unto death in this context would only happen to true Christians. It would be a judgment, a punishment of God, um, but not a, not a punishment unto eternal death. Uh, it's just God dealing with his own family discipline uh, he disciplines his children judgment begins at the house of God atheists, agnostics, and secularists had nothing to do with God so really um, um, they they don't really find their place in this discussion here is Victor on line one from San Antonio Victor thank you very much you're on the air
4: yes sir I had a question for you Um, Uh, you know, in the, in the uh, early church, you had what they call the church fathers, and uh, my understand, I was wondering if you could recommend a resource to study that because I know I hear about you know well in the Council of Nicea and this and that and the other. Well, then at the same time you have uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and then you also have the. Um, uh, the uh, Eastern Eastern Orthodox Church and I understand that you know that it, it divided up at, at some point point. Uh, and so I was wondering if there's a resource and maybe you could explain about that uh, where where do we um, accept uh, which part of this because uh, uh, I understand that um, that uh, the uh, when when the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, uh, Constantine uh, uh, converted uh, the, uh the, the true believers uh, were skeptical, and they basically stayed away. So I was wondering if you could explain how, uh, where to understand it, and perhaps a resource that we could study up on that uh, to help us with our understanding of, uh, especially when dealing with uh, family among predominantly uh, Roman Catholic uh, family members. That, yeah, I can that. Uh, so I appreciate it. I'll listen on the air. Thanks, you.
3: Thank you, Victor. I can do that. Uh, um, You you know, uh, I'm a big FF, FF, like Frank Frank, FF Bruce fan. I've uh, uh, read FF Bruce from the time... Literally, I was saved, and he has a lot of um, things new testament history a book called new testament history uh, the 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 biblical documents are they reliable um, um, there's a book he's written on church history, so if you'd google f f Bruce. Uh, You'd be able to find a a really good selection of his writings. Uh, There are all kinds. Josh McDowell has um, um, evidence that demands a verdict. It's actually the new evidence that demands a verdict. Josh McDowell seems like a goofy guy, but he's brilliant. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that you can read. There's a lot of stuff out there. If you would just Google um, um, church history, uh, you'd get a list of of books and scholars that would... um, um, pretty much be safe in the history uh, of the church would be accurately represented now here's what I really want to take my time and say to Victor uh, I'm not one of those guys who believes that because the church father said this or the church father said this that has any bearing at all with what we believe. Here's the one thing that church history teaches us throughout the years. And I am not demeaning or belittling in any way those giants of the faith who went before us. We're all a function of the culture that we live in, the time that we were raised, the information, you know, Daniel says in the end, knowledge will increase. Uh, Truthfully, we have more knowledge available to us uh, simply by history and experience, not to mention the proliferation of information uh, than did those uh, early church fathers who were influenced um, in in, in great measure by their environment, by the people around them, by what they were taught. Uh, uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, um, uh, Luther's uh, Reformation, uh, all of those things are important to study and to know about. However, We don't want to let those things influence our doctrine. The truth has always been that there has been great division and great disagreement doctrinally, and most of that disagreement comes when a church movement, uh, for example the Roman Catholic Church, uh, comes into power or assumes authority and, and dictates really what information is available. Um, the Roman Catholic Church the Emperor Constantine as you mentioned in 313 AD declared uh, Christianity to the Catholic Church a Catholic meaning only universal uh, not the Roman Catholic Church it just happened that he was the Emperor of Rome and that's where it all settled and from then forward uh, really what church history has provided is a distortion of our faith so Victor read your Bible I know you do God bless you for that but We can learn from their experience, but we can learn more doctrinally from what our Bibles provide for us. Um, It doesn't matter if the Catholic Church teaches this or teaches that. What matters is what the Bible says. Not what their interpretation of the Bible is, but what it says. And that's the, the wonderful privilege we have of having the Spirit of God within us. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has such heretical teaching. Um, And I'm not condemning all identifying Catholics, but the Church itself is heretical and can't be classified as Christian, though they classify themselves as Christian. We have to be careful. What lines up with Scripture? Uh, it was in the eleventh century that the church split into the uh, between the Catholic Church and the Eastern uh, Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox Church and there's all kinds of things uh, in the in the sixteenth century it was Luther who who nailed his ninety five thesis on the door at Wittenberg um, but but they retained so much of the Catholicism and the liturgy that you can barely tell the difference between the Catholic Church. and and the offshoots of the Catholic Church. So, read Church History, F.F. Bruce especially is great, but there are others, and they're just escaping my mind uh, for the time being, but they're easy to find, they're easy to Google, uh, and there's a lot of information. Just remember, have your Bible open, because what the Church Fathers taught doesn't make it right. The Church Father that matters to me is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and Luke, and the others who wrote our Bibles. They're the church fathers that laid a foundation for the church to be built on. The Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, uh, the the Greek Orthodox, they, they didn't lay a foundation for us. They just built on the foundation using faulty materials. And again, I want to say this clearly, while there is benefit from us learning from what they went through and how their faith evolved. None of it has any value for us if it contradicts what the Bibles say now. For your family that's Catholic, I find, Victor, the single greatest passage of scripture to deal with a Catholic in our culture is John chapter three, because Jesus is speaking directly to the most religious man in Israel. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he in no way will enter the kingdom of God. And the Catholic doctrine of infant baptism, they claim deals with with, with uh, the, the issue of original sin. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that's contrary to what the Bible tells us as clearly as it possibly can. So the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 your live calls and questions. Uh, I'm going to take that mature question right after the break. We're about four minutes from the end of this half of the program. So when we come back from the break, you can sort of turn off your sound if you've got little kids around or in the car radio. Uh, But I'm going to take that call right at the top of the second half hour of the program. Uh, Here is a question from... Anonymous. Nope, that's the one I can't do yet. Okay, let me take one that I know I can do here. Um, Melissa wants to know, uh, why was God going to kill Moses in Exodus chapter 4? Melissa, God was going to kill him. It was Jesus, by the way. Jesus was going to kill him as the angel of the Lord uh, because Moses refused to circumcise his children, his boys. It's that simple. Uh, Moses was not married to a Jewish woman. His wife believed that that uh, uh, the Jewish practice of circumcision was bloody and barbaric. She said it uh, with her own lips um, and she wasn't a, a partner in it and he, rather than being obedient to God, uh, was uh, compromising and, um, and that's where Jesus met him. Remember, God gave him the greatest privilege of the day, by being God's spokesman, by leading his people, by setting him free. Jesus will later say, to whom much is given, much is required, and that context is much more. And Moses was accountable to God. And it was at that point when his wife saw that, he, that, that, that Jesus really was going to kill him, and she took the flint knife and circumcised uh, her sons herself through the foreskins at uh, Moses' feet, this bloody religion, and then she left him for a time uh, later to be brought back by her father. Uh, but that's why, uh, you know, when, when God gives you responsibility especially the greater the responsibility it might be, the more accountable we are to be obedient. And there is no way that Moses, no way at all, that Moses uh, could have been the deliverer that God chose him to be and and had that kind of disobedience going on in his own home. You know, Melissa, there's some great, great... Lessons and applications for us, and we who are fathers and mothers in our own homes, um, we have to demonstrate to our families that we stand with and for the Lord. We have to be responsible, to be obedient. We have to understand that with privilege, there is accountability. Husbands need to know the same thing. We like the, the the the. benefits of being boss, you know, we're the head of our household, but so often we reject the responsibilities that go along with leadership, and God holds us accountable for all of those things, so it's really, really important that we understand, and this was all and only about obedience. Moses, if you're going to represent me, you're going to do it my way on my terms, and in fact. Um, it was such a serious issue that it was Jesus as the angel of the Lord who really was going to kill him. Of course, we know he didn't. The obedience happened, and eventually the family got back together too, which is a good thing. I hope that helps. A hey, 340-9585, when we get back from break, we got Chris holding on the line, we'll go to him first, and then we will go right to the uh, mature question, mature content, and I just want to give everybody a heads up on that. 340-95-85. 9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to and for Life. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
3: welcome back to the second half of the word to stand on for life let's go right back to the phones chris from new Brumfels, thanks for holding you on the air
4: hi good afternoon pastor ron i just have a question from mm-hmm. you, you wrote book about uh uh The type of, the version of Bible that you would best suggest, uh, uh, to have. I have the NIV, but I, I don't research on the internet and talk to different people. I get so many opinions and read so much about which Bible is the best translation. Uh, so I just wondering what your opinion is on, on what you think is the, the best uh, Bible version to use, and, and I'll listen off air.
3: Thank you. Okay, Chris. Thank you, Chris. I can do that. Uh, Chris, I'm a big NIV fan. Uh, 1984 version. Now, I've been threatening to change what I teach from for a long time because the 1984 version of the NIV uh, is very, very difficult. Um, When I say very difficult, really difficult uh, to find uh, uh, when they changed it in 2011 made it gender inclusive, Uh, they really did damage to the text. So uh, I make sure everybody understands, if you can't find a 1984 version of the NIV, don't use the 2011 version of the the NIV. Thomas Nelson Publishers, uh, it's easy to tell which it is, but the 84 version, uh, in the New Testament especially, is by far the most accurate translation. Uh, There are other translations that I prefer for the Old Testament. Um, The New King James, the ESV is a great translation. Um, for the New Testament, the Living Bible, uh, not a word-for-word translation, uh, more of a thought-for-thought kind of translation, but, but boy, there are some places that the Living Bible absolutely nails it. The other alternative that I can suggest for you safely, uh, especially as it relates to the New Testament, Chris, is the New Living Translation, um, the, the NLT, uh, and, and you, you do fine with that. Um, you know, there are very few bad Bible translations. So I think the key is comfort. Um, the key is readability. What will you read and what will you study? Um, I don't like paraphrases. Generally, the, the message I don't think is reliable. Um, Eugene Peterson's fine. I just hate the message. Uh, but but so anything the, if if I have to choose um, another one, if if the NIV the 84 version simply is not available any longer, um, then I am almost certainly going to go to the New King James. That'll surprise a lot of people from my church because I've been trying to prepare them for the ESV for a long long time. The problem is I just can't get comfortable with the ESV personally. There's nothing wrong with it. I just can't get comfortable with it personally. So um, I would I would suggest uh, Paula reads the, the New King James in, in our home. Uh, I read the 84 version of the NIV. She reads to me out of the NIV. Um, but, but I love having the New King James there. The other thing that is really great, Chris, is that all of your Bible programs, um, I've got an old program because I don't like change, but the PC... Uh, Bible Study Plus, um, I've got uh, 10 translations uh, that I can check um, um, when questions arise. So um, my, my personal favorite, the 84 version of the NIV, uh, but it, short of that, either the New Living Translation, uh, the Living Bible, only for the New Testament, or the New King James, I think it's very, very, very reliable. I like it, the King James, Chris. The King James is what I cut my teeth on. The King James, because it is so memorable, is is what I have stuck in my memory. You may have heard me say this before, but I'm visually impaired. So there's a lot of times when I'm teaching uh, from the pulpit and I can't see. And so what I always do is just sort of a reflex. uh, When I can't see, and my church knows this now, uh, King James will come out because that's what I've memorized. So... That's um, just just sort of my default. So the King James is a wonderful translation. The problem is with the King James, when you're a Bible teacher, as I am, the problem with the King James is that you spend a whole bunch of time saying, after reading the King James, well, in Greek it means this, or, or a more literal translation would be this, and you end up reading the 84 version of the NIV. So uh, th- those are my thoughts, Chris, but you can't go wrong. Um, one thing that I would encourage you, and everybody else, Chris, you didn't ask this, But study Bibles. Stay away from them. Just get reference Bibles. Get a Bible with nothing but Bible. And and let the Lord sort of speak to your heart and teach you uh, how he wants to lead you through the scriptures. Chris, I hope that helps. Thank you very much for listening. Now, here is going to be, here's the break. I'm going to take 10 seconds of quiet air. Can I do 10 seconds of quiet? Air? Five seconds. Okay, my producer's saying. Um, so if you're going to turn down the, the volume, do it now. One, two, three, four, five. See, I couldn't do the quiet air, so I just counted five. Uh, it's from Anonymous, her email inbox. Uh, this question contains very mature content. Please warn listeners who may have children listening. Yesterday in Second Service, perhaps in all three, you said, Wives, if your husband is asking you to perform vile sexual acts that he's seen on a computer screen and says, God says you have to submit to me, you need to say no, and it's degrading and it's abandoning natural relations. My question is, now before I get to the question, a couple of things by way of explanation. One, I didn't say that's abandoning natural relations. Um, our context is Romans chapter 1. We were talking about sexual immorality, um, the, the, the wrath of God being revealed currently, uh, God leaving us alone with ourselves, And and we're talking about um, uh, immoral heterosexuality, uh, men and women who aren't married sleeping together. We're talking about immoral homosexuality, all of these things. And, and, and Paul is very direct on it. That's why I said at the beginning of the program this was a tough question. I didn't say it's abandoning natural relations, men with women and women with men, um, but it's a perversion of those natural relations, the things I talked about. And I had to talk about pornography because it's such a problem in the church today. Okay, back to her question. My question is... Is it wrong for my husband and I to perform oral sex on each other or to please each other in various other non-harmful or violent ways? We certainly don't see it as vile. We didn't pick it up from watching porn together, but I cannot think of anything else you meant when you said perform acts you saw on a computer screen and abandoning natural relations. My husband and I thoroughly enjoy each other's body and we're concerned by your meaning yesterday. Thank you for coming, and thank you. This is why why Bible studies matter so much. First of all, God bless you and your husband for thoroughly enjoying each other's bodies. God made the sexual relationship between the husband and the wife rich. If you remember, in all three studies yesterday, I said, in fact, when Jesus is there, the sex act between the husband and wife is holy and it's passionate. When I do premarriage counseling, we talk about this. God intends sex to be pure, unselfish, selfless, and passionate. One needs only to read the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Uh, In some translations, it's called... And you understand the passion that God intends for there to be inside the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Not only is it for procreation, it is fun. That's how much God loves us. So uh, God bless you for that. You know, when, when a husband and a wife have a passionate sex life, it is almost always an indication that their walk with Jesus is also passionate. That's where that passion comes from. So you keep enjoying each other's bodies. It's okay. Now, performing oral sex is fine. Song of Solomon, if you read it closely, you're gonna hear that, you're gonna see that. So it's fine. There is only one sex act that the Bible roundly and completely condemns, and that's sodomy or anal sex. Beyond that, there's nothing that a husband and a wife who are there to please one another and to enjoy one another, there's nothing that they can't do. Uh, have fun. Enjoy it. And in fact, uh, you Paula sent me an email, I sent her a copy of this question, just to see if she had any comments. And she says when she talks to the lady, she says she calls this homework. Go, Ladies, go do your homework, take care of your husband, satisfy his needs. Husbands, I would say to you that your job isn't to have your needs met. Your job is to satisfy your wife. And in the marriage bed, pure and undefiled, um, when two people are trying to satisfy the other, the result is always going to be this kind of passion. So, um, God bless you, Anonymous, you and your husband continue to enjoy each other's bodies. Um, um, I didn't mean uh, anything at all uh, in terms of natural or unnatural. What I was indicating with the the pornography on the computer screen is that there are husbands who are immersed in pornography and they try to make their wives watch it with them and perform sex acts with them during the, the, the pornography, or they're taking some of the things that they see in the, those, uh, in that pornography and, and trying to get their wives to do things that make them uncomfortable um, remember we're serving one another um, it's a great thing to enjoy your sex life so en- enjoy, have fun I hope that answers your question and I'm very really proud to, uh, I don't know who you are obviously but you were here in church yesterday so I'm proud to be your pastor God bless you Three four zero ninety here is a question from Nacho. Uh, he said, Pastor on in the light of the current temporary immigration order made by the administration, do you think that it is unchristian not to allow refugees into our countries, into our country, especially persecuted Christians. Uh, not you, uh, the reason I, I don't like to deal with political things. You know that on this program, this is a Bible show. But, but this is something that I think we need to understand. This question matters so much because this isn't the decision any Christian has to make. Our government is not Christian. Let me say that again. Our government, our president, our Senate, our Congress is not Christian. So to expect them to make decisions based on what is Christian or unchristian is to miss the point. And individually, even to have an opinion on it, and, and everybody has opinions about everything. I understand that. But There is nothing that we can do individually as Christians, nothing that we can do that's going to convince the administration to rescind the order or to extend the order, depending on which side of the argument that you fall on. There's nothing we can do. So this is something that we Christians don't need to wring our hands about. It's something we don't need to get on Facebook and talk to everybody about. You you know, the, 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 the explosion on Facebook, and I'm not a social media person, you guys all know that. But, but I can't tell you how many people have talked to me about unfriending people because they fall on different sides of this argument, people out in the streets protesting, uh, at airports, stopping other people. i tell you, if I was in an airport yesterday and my flight was delayed uh, because somebody wanted to protest, I would be personally upset. Is it their right to do it? Yeah, I guess. But I don't want their right to cause me to miss a plane. It's that simple. These protests have no value, nor to our opinions if we're on the other side of the issue. Here's what we do. And if I could have one word for every Christian who's on Facebook spending time arguing about how unchristian our country is, you know, we're a nation of immigrants and we got to love everybody and bring everybody in. The one thing I would say to them, how many people yesterday did you tell about Jesus? How much time did you spend on Facebook arguing with people? Here's what we do. If we really love people, we go out and tell them about Jesus. Nacho suggests one other thing. If we understand that our only ministry, if I could emphasize that more strongly, I would. Our only ministry is for those who the Lord allows to come before us face to face. That's our only ministry. I can't minister to people in Syria. I can't minister to people uh, who are fleeing Aleppo. I can't minister to any of those people. I have no impact, no influence at all in their life. Now, I can pray for them. I wonder if the people on Facebook and the people in protests, especially those who lean toward the left in their political ideology, I wonder if they spend any time at all praying for those people rather than raving against a government order. You see, as Christians... We have the opportunity to impact the people that we come face to face with. And since we can't change anything about our government's policy, not until election time, we can write a congressman, we can write a senator, that's all fine. That's part of our American process. But we have no impact whatsoever on what President Trump is going to do or how the Democrats are going to respond. But if I take time to pray for those people, if I take time to pray for them, I can change things. Why don't we do that? Why would we spend hours on Facebook instead of minutes in prayer? The answer, sadly, is we don't trust that prayer actually has value the other sad truth is that we have this compulsion to let people know what we think we don't need to do that we just don't need to do it so, Nacho, I hope that answers your question. I'm sure it's not the question that you wanted or the answer that you wanted. Let's go to Austin, Texas now. Oh, no, let's go first to Troy in San Antonio. Troy, thanks for holding you on the air. Emily, we'll get you right after Troy. Troy, you're on the air.
2: All right. The phones are busy. How are you doing, Pastor Ron?
3: Doing well, thanks.
2: I, I thought it was kind of funny. I, did I just hear a Archie phone and John McArthur plug during the commercial break for a Pastor Ron
3: I don't normally <laughs> listen to the commercials <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: That's just kind of funny From our conversation in the past You know I am uh, yeah, John I'm. MacArthur and R.C. Spool Guy But but I listen to you too And I know it's okay to, to disagree on some things But mm-hmm. anyhow Sorry about that I wanted to get to my question So I'll do that right now So, um, My question is From Numbers chapter 25, and I believe it is verse number four, and I was wondering, God's command to Moses, did did Moses follow through with God's uh, complete command in that verse, in the following verse, or later down the line, or if you can maybe just explain verses four and five a little bit for me, and maybe I can get a, a better picture of that.
3: I can do that, Troy. Thank you very, very much. And uh, I, I'm, I, I actually enjoy listening to John MacArthur sometimes. I'm not an RC school guy at all, and you know, of course, I am not reformed at all. But beyond that, um, um, then God has used um, in Numbers chapter 25. Uh, this is so harsh to to uh, our New Testament ears that are tuned into to grace. Uh, These two verses sound so harsh. Uh, So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. Now we need to remember two things. First, the Israelites, the people that are going to be put to death, willingly entered into a covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai. They listened with eagerness to the cursings and the blessings at Mount Gerizim and Ebal, God was very clear with exactly what He would do if they engage in this kind of behavior. God said, if you do this, you are going to die. Now, in His mercy, God ordered the bodies of those that would be killed, uh, exposed, as a warning or deterrent to the rest of the people, and yet the people didn't listen. Baal was the god of fertility, he was responsible for rain, and Israel's future is going to be uh, devastated uh, as they will later turn to Baal uh, for worship and rain instead of turning to God. So God warned them. You know, when people read these things, and Troy, I know this isn't where you're coming from, but sometimes we read these things, how could God do such a thing? Um, He told them that's what he was going to do. God cannot lie. He's a not lying God. If God said, if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. And here's the cursing, you will die. Why would we expect anything different? They knew clearly. The second thing that we need to remember, and this is what we forget in this all the grace teaching that we get, is that the wages of sin is death. Paul says that in his letter to the Romans. We, because God doesn't judge us or kill us instantly, we forget that our willful sin deserves the same punishment. And we have grace. Thank God for grace. You know, I always think of the repentant thief on the cross who confessed that he and his friend deserved their punishment. Too much in our culture, we don't think that we deserve forgiveness, uh, or I'm sorry, we think that that we do deserve forgiveness and grace. You know, we should never be upset with God when we encounter consequences, a judgment is necessary, and yet men are defiant. So yes, they actually did kill them. Uh, that was the punishment. The people knew they had it coming, and God warned them ahead of time. So that's exactly what he did. Let's go to Emily in Austin. Emily, thanks for holding. You're on the air.
2: Yes, thanks, Pastor Ron. I have a quick question. Um, can you explain to me uh, your views um, and and give me both sides, you know, why you believe it and why you don't or why you don't or why, and why others believe uh, replacement theology?
3: Oh, wow. Yeah, Emily, uh, we, I'm going to have you listen on the phone. We're inside five minutes, and, and this will take up my time. Replacement theology, in short, is, is um, that the church has replaced Israel uh, in terms of the promises of God or being the beneficiaries of the promise of God uh, those who are replacements uh, and that's what they're called um, believe that by rejecting Jesus um, uh, Israel forfeited their covenant with God and, and thus God created the church as their replacement Emily, I cannot tell you how strongly uh, I disagree with that Uh, I think it is a satanic doctrine, it's certainly not a biblical doctrine. The promises you see that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that God made to David, and the promises God made to Moses, um, most of them in terms of the original covenants were unconditional. It didn't say, if you do this, I'll do this. God said, I will swear by myself, because there was no one greater to swear by, I will swear by myself. If we look at the eschatology of of the times coming in the future We know Jesus is coming back. We know that that David, Ezekiel 38 and 39, declares going to be Israel's prince. Uh, We know that God has to fulfill every unconditional promise he made, or he isn't God, because that would make him a liar. So, uh, replacement theology is sinister. I think it's pernicious, um, uh, demonic. Uh, It's simply trying to uh, wipe Israel. It's it's, uh, Jewish hate, And and we need to understand that. You know, Jesus said, uh, Paul reiterated, that um, they're the vine. We're the unnatural branches. We're grafted in. And um, what could be better, Paul says, than when those uh, original branches are grafted back in to the vine? And, and we're, we're simply beneficiaries of that. So in the Great Tribulation, God is again going to turn His promises to Israel. Emily, the one thing that I could really encourage you to do is um, read, study Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, if you, uh, I'm not trying to be um, arrogant here, but but if you'd like to go to calvaryessay.com, you can kind of plug in to my teachings on those three chapters. Um, Paul is using the, the faithless nation of Israel as an example to prove the case he just made in the first eight chapters of Romans about the greatness, the faithfulness, and the love of God, and and. To to, to to teach it the church has replaced Israel makes, takes all of the sense out of scriptures so replacement theology is not sound doctrine uh, it is heretical doctrine in fact um, it's just something that we really need to understand God made unconditional covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob to King David you will never fail to have a man sit on my throne King David is going to be at Jesus' right hand or left hand. You know, it's interesting, Emily. Uh, you remember when James and John, the sons of thunder, came and, and, and they had their mother kind of go to Jesus and say, couldn't sons have a place on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, those places are not mine to give. They've already been given. Well, we know one of those places has been given to David, a man after God's own heart. It is my opinion, and that's all this is, It's my opinion that the other place that they asked for is going to be given to, to the Apostle Paul. Some really, really good stuff, really good question. but please do not. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, we're, we're, I, Emily, I appreciate it. Uh, from our mobile app, uh, from the, the person who wrote in the question, the mature question, she says, whew, thank you, Pastor Ron, for clarifying. <laughs> good, so I'm glad she heard it, and I'm glad. Hey, I, you know, you don't turn the shows to talk about sex, but enjoy your sex life with your husband or with your wife. If you're not married, abstain. Do it for Jesus. You can hear the music. We're at the end of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember men's, women's, and youth studies tonight at 7. God bless. See you tomorrow.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.